Coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch, we are talking about a term called reactants. And actually, the more I think about it, you can skip this one. I, I don't know if this one would really be applicable to you. Um, actually, I would. If I were you, I would just skip it. Okay, I'm the world's worst actor, but I am kidding. Uh, please, listen to this episode. Uh, psychological reactants, is, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a game changer for you. Why do we naturally push back against things that even at times we know are good for us? We're going to cover that topic and much more coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch. Okay, uh, more email feedback before we get to the show. And this one is so good. This one is uh, is my favorite. I know we're not supposed to have favorites. Each and every email is very important to me, just like all of my kids. But uh, you're going to like this one a lot. It says, Tony, and I did get permission from the, uh, the author of this email. Tony, therapy is like a bathroom in the middle of a long run. They already have me right there. I've got plenty of stories about bathrooms in the middle of a long run. Uh, but the person goes on to say, just uh, just wait to let you know you're making a difference in my life. My wife first introduced me to your podcast a year or so during a rough period of time for both of us. Discussing your episodes has broken the ice for some much-needed conversations between us, which I'm so grateful for. I really am. Um, back to the email. That alone has been amazing. I'm using BetterHelp, thanks to you. I live in a small town. Let me just say, that would be betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Please, please go there. If you're going to check, uh, take a look at betterhelp.com, please go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. It really helps the podcast. But he says, I'm using BetterHelp thanks to you. I live in a small town and the counselor options are slim. Plus, I never saw myself as somebody who needed therapy. I came close a few times to setting up appointments, but I always backed out. BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch is so easy. Before you can have a second thought, they have you matched up. I love that because the uh, that process is very easy on BetterHelp.com. The barrier to entry is so low. I've been using it for a few weeks now, and I know it's going to make a difference in my life. Now to explain my crude analogy. My wife and I are training for a marathon. During the long run, we were catching up, and I was telling her about my experience with BetterHelp. A few miles later, we were passing a bathroom. I tried to tell myself I could tough it out, and I didn't want to stop and break my rhythm. Boy, have I been there. One of these days, I'm going to tell a story about uh, why I hold a Strava record in the town of Davis during a one particular one-mile stretch of a half marathon that has to do with exactly this concept. But that will be a very vulnerable uh, story for me. Back to the email. But I tried to tell myself I could tough it out and didn't want to stop and break my rhythm. I told myself I was tougher than that, but I stopped. After, I ran faster, felt better, and was glad I stopped. Therapy is the same. I was telling myself I wasn't that guy and that I could tough it and that I could tough it out. Now that I'm going, I feel better, and uh, it's worth the brief pause on life. Keep up the good work. So thank you for that email. Again, these are coming in pretty regularly now, and I'm grateful for that. So please go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. And uh, just know that uh, that BetterHelp.com, over 500,000 people have already signed up, done this before you as well. Um, they're going to BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch, getting the help they need, even the help that they didn't know they need, as we learned about in this email today. There's a broad range of expertise in the counselor network that might not be available in local areas. Uh, it's available for clients worldwide. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You get timely and thoughtful responses. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, even though my waiting room is very nice. I will admit that, but uh, but some some aren't. Or you're, you, might, you don't want to run into somebody you know, but BetterHelp will assess your needs, match it with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can often start communicating in less than 24 hours. And uh, they also have scholarships. So if you are struggling financially, but you really want that help, um, betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, go through there, sign up, and uh, you will find out that there are a lot of um, options for you on betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, even if you are struggling financially. And uh, and I actually have coming up later this week, I have one of the um, a, a kind of a big deal at betterhelp.com. 
and they're coming on to talk about the whole um, experience of BetterHelp, and I'm really excited for you to hear that interview. It's it's going to sound a little bit advertising, but man, we get into the nuts and bolts of how it works and uh, signing up for accounts and the way the therapists work and all that, so I'm I'm really excited to share that interview coming up later this week. Um, There's a special offer for Virtual Couch listeners. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. So what are you waiting for? Go sign up today. Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people like you reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. So if you or anybody that you know is struggling to put pornography behind them once and for all, and trust me, it can be done in a strength-based, hold the shame, become the person you always knew you could be way, then please head over to pathbackrecovery.com and there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to rid themselves of pornography once and for all. So again, that's pathbackrecovery.com and that site has been revamped. And uh, you might have noticed I worked a new angle into that intro after a 170-something episode episodes. And I absolutely forgot it there. So it shows kind of how those deep neuro pathways, those habits uh, kind of can still kick in there. So I've been working in there that I'm also co-author of the best-selling book. He's a porn addict. Now what? An expert and a former addict answer your questions in which I play the role of the expert. And I'm going to make a note right now to put in the show notes when I get to the heart of today's subject matter, which is reactance. It's this uh, word that I learned pretty recently and was almost happy to find out that the therapist that I was working with at a presentation the night where I unveiled the topic of reactance also weren't familiar with this. But I really feel like, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but this that what you're going to hear today is a bit of a game changer. But I want to put in the show notes when we get to that because there are a few things I want to cover because it's been a pretty fascinating last few days, especially with some interviews that I was a part of. So I want to talk a little bit about those and I'll try to get through that as quick as I can. So um, please do visit Virtual Couch on Instagram and you can also find a Tony Overbay licensed marriage and family therapist page on Facebook as well as a a Virtual Couch page on there that isn't used as much. And if you have a minute, you've enjoyed any of the Virtual Couch podcast material, I would love it if you would do me a favor and please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, please go over to TonyOverbay.com and sign up for an email newsletter. You can also reach me at contact at tonyoverbay.com or there's also a way to get a hold of me through the website and you can ask questions go ahead feel free ask me things um, suggest podcast topics i'm getting a lot more of uh, people asking hey would you be able to speak or train or coach or those sort of things and i welcome all of that feedback again that's through the website or you can just email me directly at contact at tonyoverbay.com okay and speaking of reviews let me read one here uh, therapy on the go. This is from Moppet 40. While Tony always advocates for real treatment and enlisting local therapists when needed, I so appreciate his personal, uh, personable and humor-infused approach to his, quote, virtual couch sessions. Always finding nuggets to improve my mental health and relationships. Way to go, Tony. So thank you so much for the wonderful reviews. All right, let's... Uh, <laughs> I told you I had a lot to get through. I was going to say, let's get to the topic. So um, 
there were two podcasts that were released this week that I was a guest on. And you know, what's kind of super funny to me behind the scenes is one I literally recorded last Friday and it was up over the weekend. And another one I recorded in early December and it came out this morning. And, and uh, just the way that different people do their different podcasts. I'm one who tries to get an interview and I can kind of get it up in a week or two. But uh, some people like my friend, Nikki Eisenhower, who I had recorded, um, what, two months, three months ago, she had such a bag backlog of guests that, uh, that I, she told me at that time it was going to be a, a few months before I got on. But so the two podcasts this week, the first was from Brandon Patrick and Brandon was on my show talking about betrayal trauma. And if, if you're not familiar with the name, Brandon's the expert on, uh, on a podcast that's about betrayal trauma and, uh, it's called ask Brandon anything. So his podcast is called the betrayed, the addicted and the expert in which he plays the expert. And that one has been incredibly helpful with so many of my own clients. And that was part of why I wanted to get him on my show a little while ago. And uh, and he was kind enough to ask me on, it's a brand new podcast. Again, it's called Ask Brandon Anything. And so if you're not familiar with that podcast, please go find it and on wherever you get your podcast. And also you can find a video of our interview on Facebook. And I'm going to share that to my pages as well. But on Ask Brandon Anything, he and I discussed faith crisis and faith journeys, what happens when a couple who was or has been on the same page faith-wise go through challenges perhaps in their own lives or in their marriage that finds them now on maybe a different page faith-wise, or when a particular experience or set of experiences causes a couple perhaps together, or maybe again, just one of them to find that they're now perhaps in a different place, place faith-wise than the faith that they had always grown up with and, and had maybe always relied on to make sense of the world. So please find that one. That's one that I, I cannot stress how important I feel like those topics are to talk about as well. That's something I'm passionate about. That's something I see literally every day in my practice. And I'll link to that episode in the show notes as well. And, uh, and here we go. All right. So I woke up this morning. This is Monday, March 2nd. I think this probably won't go out until the 3rd, the, this episode. And I refresh my podcast feeds in the morning while I'm getting dressed, ready to go work out. And I see, uh, I try to see what was released overnight. And I was met with an episode that I did on my friend Nikki Eisenhower's podcast. And, uh, and, and okay, if you're new to the virtual couch, even within the last year, this is probably going to make no sense. But let me just set the stage. I am so, so not the person who judges anybody for the words they choose. I mean, I, I really am not. Um, I, I have friends that are all around me that use very colorful language. I, I grew up using colorful language. Um, the language that, uh, that people use, um, I, it really really doesn't bother me at all. One of the funnest things is to be in my office and have someone that looks as if they've never said a, 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 a colorful word in their life, um, you know, a swear word, uh, whatever we want to call them. And then they open up and, uh, and kind of open up with that and go, oh my gosh, is that okay? I'm like, yeah, you're, you're in therapy. You do whatever the heck you want. And so, but uh, you know, there's a f- super long story I think I've told in the past where I think I was 16 years old. I had a bit of a colorful mouth and uh, I think uh, my mom had, had I always, I, I romanticize the stories if she had dropped something in the kitchen and, uh, and she had let out a word or something. And then I did something. I let out a word. She told me, don't say that. I think I said something to the effect of, you know, well, you did. And then there was a, a story of, um, you know, I don't know. I said, I'll never, I'll never say another bad word again. And I think, uh, that was it like 16. And then I, I kind of didn't. So, and, and, and matter of fact, it goes right along with the topic today of reactants. We'll get to that. I just had an, an epiphany right there. But so, um, <laughs> that's such a long story to say to you that Nikki's podcast, Nikki is a huge deal. And so, um, she had me on 
um, her successful podcast. It's far more successful than the virtual couch for sure. But Nikki's a big deal. And the name of her podcast is one that I, as a 50-year-old man, couldn't get myself to say when she came on my own podcast. I think it was probably almost offensive to her. But the name of it is, drum roll please, here we go emotional badass there that was easier than i thought that's the name of her podcast she recorded me um again back in early december she's that big of a deal she was scheduled out that far but i had to listen to it this morning and i really don't like listening to myself but it's because she asked me so many just interesting in-depth um questions that i've never been asked before and and so i just absolutely loved it and uh i knew that uh, that she was asking me these questions and i remember that and i've thought about it so many times i've been wanting to get a hold of a recording even before it released. And she just had reached out to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, trust me, it's so good. And so it really was. Nikki is a highly sensitive person or an HSP. And that's why she came on my show a year or so ago to talk about a highly sensitive person, HSP, which is also known as sensory processing sensitivity. And what that is, is if you're somebody who often feels a lot of the emotions in a room, you know, has lived a life of maybe being told not to worry about it or get over it, or it's not a big deal. And you just can't simply get over it and things are a big deal to you, please go find that interview with Nikki from a year or so ago and check out her podcast. But we talked about pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behaviors, levels of intimacy. Um, We talked about uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. We talked about taking shame out of conversations. Um, She asked me specifically my stances on things like masturbation and is a little bit of pornography good and healthy sexuality and so many good questions. And she is a great interviewer. So please go check out that episode. Okay, so you can see I really had a lot I wanted to get to. But now I will take a breath in through the nose, out through the mouth, and uh, let's jump into today's topic because it's called reactants. And here's the quick story. It was just a couple of weeks ago. I feel like I need to say it was a cold and rainy night, but it wasn't. It's uh, Northern California and it's uh, the end of February and it was beautiful. And I had a a opportunity to speak to a bunch of religious leaders, a lot of them, and they were going to be in this room. And I was there with two other therapists. And it was just such a fun experience where we were coming on um, the first therapist who's uh, an amazing clinician who I'd worked with when I was doing my internship. She was there to basically kind of encourage these leaders that uh, that here's you know here's here's kind of what is is being asked of them to do to go out and and really reach out and help a lot of people. That was the first part. My part was then to say and, and kind of here's how you do it. And then there was a guy behind me doing cleanup who was then saying and if you know if you need any additional help, here are some resources. And so I I literally sat there and I googled why you know article on why people do the opposite of what they are told to do or suggested to do. And it, because I use that all the time, I've, I've said it on many podcasts. If you have kids, you know, that's definitely a thing. Um, but immediately a word came up and it's reactance and that's spelled R-E-A-C-T-A-N-C-E. And, and reactance by definition, and I'm going to give you a couple of different definitions here, but reactance in general, uh, psychological reactance is the instantaneous reaction we have to being told what to do. And so this has led to some remarkable findings. And uh, one is I'm, I found an article that I will um, link to. I'll link to all the things that I'm going to talk about here in the show notes. But in a nutshell, it talked about using that a lot of reactance information has been studied in courtroom settings. And, it, and it'll make a lot of sense. Let me kind of share this. So, so imagine... Um, a courtroom setting where, and in this one, you've got mock jurors, but they're presented with a piece of evidence that's later ruled inadmissible. So when the jurors are asked to disregard the tainted evidence, their conviction rates are actually higher 
when an admissible ruling was accompanied by a judge's extensive legal explanations than when the inadmissibility was simply left unexplained. And this comes from a study by uh, Pickle and Wolf and Montgomery. And I have to tell you, this one resonated. As somebody who has testified in court cases, which I have done a few now, um, typically I'm, I'm uh, representing someone who has been coming out of a relationship with someone who has had a personality disorder. But you get a defense attorney, and they are trying to kind of get you riled up, just like you see on TV. And uh, want, they want you to kind of respond or react, I think, at times, and say something that uh, that maybe you don't want to say, or that uh, they, will, they will kind of question your character, or get you riled, you know, get angry. And so there have been a couple of times where, you know, you say something and then the attorney that's got your back says objection, you know, just like they do on TV and the judge will say sustained and then they'll say strike that from the record. So what's supposed to happen is the jury is supposed to pretend like they never heard whatever that thing was. So that's, you know, or, or something like this where this is inadmissible evidence. So back to this example. So in this case, the mock jurors reacted to being told what to think to the degree that they decided to use the inadmissible evidence just despite the judge for being spoken to authoritatively. So again, what that one was, was the judge says there's some inadmissible evidence, don't use it. And then to half of those jurors, he lectured them for a lengthy period of time. To the other half, he didn't at all. And so the ones that were lectured went on to overwhelmingly use that inadmissible evidence in their findings. So it just shows what this psychological reactance does, what it's like. So I found a, uh, it's funny, when I was doing some Googling to even find a few more um, things to share in this episode of the podcast, I found one that said a 50-year review of psychological reactance theory. Do not read this article. And so what did I do? Of course I read the article because it, it challenged me. So, um, but then there was another article that I loved, and, and this is one that I would highly recommend. I'm going to refer to this uh, throughout the remainder of this podcast, but it's on psychology.iresearchnet.com. And this is talking about reactance. So it gives a great definition. It says, broadly, reactance refers to the idea that people become upset when their freedom is threatened or eliminated, so much so that they attempt to reassert their lost freedom. Uh, the theory is re relevant to the idea that humans are motivated to possess and preserve as many options and choices as possible. So when people's options are restricted, they experience adverse emotional consequences. And, and I love it. If you're thinking ahead already, um, they call it right out here in this next line that reactance is very similar to someone's idea of reverse psychology. Just like in that article that I, that I went and read that said, don't read this article. I read it because being ordered to do something by an external person or source implies that someone is trying to reduce one's freedom. And they, they go on to say that reactance also refers to the idea that people will want something more if they're told they cannot have it. So as a result, humans may act in a manner that will oppose a resistance presented to their freedom. So just sit with that one for a moment. I mean, this is why you can tell that I said earlier, I really think this is a game changer. We've always known what this is, but it, to, to put a name to it, I think is pretty fascinating. So reactance. So if I go back to this training that I was doing, so I laid out this case basically uh, as follows. So I first laid out the, um, the empathy versus sympathy uh, concept. And again, very quickly, I feel like this is now one of my greatest hits. When I spoke in Salt Lake recently, someone who waited after, they, they even said, you know, it was like going to hear a musician so that you got your greatest hits, you got your empathy versus sympathy, and you got your acceptance and commitment therapy. And then, uh, and then I hopefully I worked a few new tracks in as well. So in the empathy versus sympathy one, the one that I've always heard that I always appreciate the best that kind of clicked for me is walking along a path, you see someone in a pit, and sympathy is saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you're in that pit, but I've got to go. I got things to do, but my goodness, I am so sorry you're in there. That really breaks my heart that you're in that pit, but best of luck. 
and empathy is coming upon that person, jumping down in the pit and saying, all right, what are we looking at here? You know, when's the last time you were in a pit? Um, what are the emotions that you have about being in a pit? What are your fears? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? You know, are you averse to dirt? Um, can you jump? Are you afraid to jump? If I put you on my back, would that be a challenge for you? You know, what are your experiences? And this is so key because even at this training, and I was so grateful that this person did this, but at this training, as I laid out empathy versus sympathy, a guy, I promise you, raised his hand. It was too good to be true and said, but but what if, what if you do understand what they're going through and they just won't listen? And again, bless this guy's heart. I was so grateful that he brought it up because I was able to kindly say that I want people to feel or learn or express empathy on a daily basis. I absolutely do. We need to teach empathy to our kids, just like we teach them math and science and that sort of thing. But at our core... We, we truly can't have pure, 100% unadulterated empathy for another person. Why? Because of the next thing that I, I brought up in this training, and this is going to make sense again with regard to reactants, is that you're the only person that has been through the things that you have been through as an individual. This is a part of acceptance and commitment therapy, that, or ACT. It's the individual therapeutic um, modality or, or type of therapy that I love. And ACT starts by saying, you're the only person that's ever been through what you've been through. You, uniquely you, that has been through from a nature and a nurture and a birth order and a DNA and an abandonment and a rejection and hopes and dreams and fears and people who have lived and, and are and moved and losses and you're you're the most unique person qualified to understand your own what they call private experiences. So if you kind of take that empathy concept again, is that this guy who's saying, but I do know what this woman was going through right there. He gave me just, you can maybe see where I had the material. It was all I could do. And I ended up getting to do it because he was, he was wonderful and hilarious. And he ended up coming up to me after and just thanking me. And I was grateful for his good natured attitude in this, um, in this, uh, training because basically once he said, you know, but I do know what she's going through, you know, again, you can see where I'm going here. It's like, well, when were you a woman? You know, when were you a 30 something year old woman who was going through this challenge? Uh, you weren't. And even if you were someone who had been born on that exact same day and who had grown up in the same town, you're still going to have different experiences. So, so that's why I feel like we kind of set the table with, uh, so we got the empathy piece, empathy versus sympathy, and then people's own private experiences. So now take that into consideration with this concept of psychological reactance or this inborn inherent need for us to maintain all the freedoms that we possibly can. And, and just think about times where anyone says to you, well, you know what you should do? You should do this. And our brain doesn't typically go, oh, I think that's a great idea. Usually it's like, well, I mean, I've tried that. Or, well, you kind of really don't understand the situation that I'm in. Or, And I'll tell you one of the things that I see this often is I have been blessed beyond anything I ever imagined with uh, the Virtual Couch podcast and uh, the, my, my book that's come out and uh, online programs and that sort of thing. And so my practice has been very full. And so I often can't fit people into my, my calendar, my schedule. And so when people come to me and they say, hey, I, I referred somebody to you and they said you couldn't get them in. And I'll, I'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I haven't really, you know, it's, it's a struggle to really fit people in my calendar. And everyone, well, you know what you need to do? You need to get a helper. You know, you need to get to this. And it's like, okay, I've got a couple of interns. I've got an office assistant. I've got, and it's like, okay, well, then you need to do this. And it's like, you know, I find that, bless their heart, not only is it the, the point that, hey, obviously I've been thinking about these things a ton. You know, I think about them all the time of ways I can be more efficient. But I also notice that psychological reactance where even if they said something that I hadn't thought of, I feel like I can almost, you know, anticipate myself going, well, but you don't even understand. 
So we've just got this psychological reactance built in. So when we are trying to communicate with someone, whether it's in business, whether it's in a, in a leadership position we have, maybe in a church or a community organization, or whether it is with our kids or our spouse, think about those concepts that you've got this empathy versus sympathy. Um, do you really, have you really tried to understand what their situation is like the best to your abilities? Um, you know, true empathy, or are you just kind of saying, hey, man, sorry to hear that, but, you know, and then go on with what, what you're ready to say. And then you've got that everyone has their own unique personal experiences, their private experiences that they bring to the table. And now, how will that change the way that you interact with them? So in, in essence, and let me skip down to uh, another article that I found, which I just like the way they summed it up. Um, they said, so the next time you're seeking to implement a change in an organization, um, you, you know, you'll surely be on the receiving end of psychological reactance. This is all the more reason to build cooperation and buy-in from the start by openly inviting contribution and participation. And so that, how do you do that? Empathy, understanding, be, being able to say to somebody, hey, tell me more about that. Or, hey, what's that like for you? You have to do the work. And, and it's not work that happens in one conversation. That's why, you know, we, we can't just always go into everything thinking this has to be my one moment where I'm going to connect with this person. Or this is, you know, I have to leave it all out on the table and tell them what they really need to do or what I really think about them. Because you are going to be met with psychological reactance. So so let me give a little bit more of the background here, which I think is pretty fascinating. Um, the, the psychological reactance theory was first proposed by social psychologist Jack Brim in 1966. And so... So it's still considered to be one of these most basic psychological theories, and it's withstood just decade after decade of testing, and it's been applied to so many aspects of human behavior. I found a lot of research done around business where it's called change resistance, and how do you fight change re resistance where, you know, in essence, it's this psychological reactance. And, and this article that I'm referring to um, says that it's, you know, it's obviously important because it highlights people's needs for control freedom of action and choice, as well as people's desire to preserve as many options as possible. And and it says that, you know, they were sure the theory was devised during a decade when people were constantly advocating and rallying about freedom of choice and action, right? It came out in the 60s. Um, Brim observed that humans react strongly to having options taken away by external forces. They become quite upset and will take action to preserve or regain their lost options. And, and so a lot of psychologists have gone on to note or done a lot of research around that as humans in general, we do have obviously this strong aversion to loss, both in both loss of options and loss of choices. So we, we value freedom. I mean, surprise, imagine that, right? And so we like our freedom so much that we're willing to, as this article says, uh, incur costs to our own self just to maintain options, even if the options uh, that keep uh, us open aren't that important or profitable. And I think that's pretty fascinating that you'll see people often argue about certain things. And I know that we've had these situations where we think, why is that important to them? You know, why are they going to the mat arguing about something that, that I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't necessarily feel as passionate about as they're manifesting with their argument? And, and that's because it is in our nature. And especially if I go back and talk about um, one's individual values, everybody's core values are just, they, they're going to be different. They're going to be formed by these private experiences. Then you may have a value of freedom, or you might have a value of compassion, or you might have a value of standing up for the, the little guy or the oppressed. And if that's one of 
of your core values, then you are going to tap into this reactance like nobody's business. And, uh, and those are a lot of the people that are going to go on to defend whoever, even if they don't necessarily agree with the cause. But if one of their core values is uh, maintaining personal freedoms or make, making sure that someone has a voice you know, to the voiceless, then, uh, then you can understand that they will then take on this reactant stance toward anything where someone feels oppressed. Um, jumping around articles here, but uh, in, in another one that I found, I thought this was really fascinating. It asked if uh, the concept of reactance was, you know, what, how did it evolve or what was it good for? And, and it said that it was in essence there so that we would not be dominated by an, you know, an alpha male in a group or a pack. And that as a collective, you can see how that will benefit a society because the theory there is that then the society will rise up and not let themselves be overtaken or overthrown by uh, an alpha male uh, leader or alpha male regime, that kind of thing. And alpha male just meaning a concept that could be alpha female as well. So let me get back up here into um, talking more about uh, reactance. So reactance theory highlights the simple but important fact that people, again, value their freedom. And so when the freedom is threatened, um, people will rally or petition or they might even become aggressive to try and regain freedom or options that they feel are jeopardized. And, and it gives a pretty good example that I think is, uh, you know, we can probably, if I plug this one in, you can think about a million different examples of this, I think. So people will engage in behavioral attempts to reassert threatened or eliminated freedoms. So that is a person will try to regain his or her freedom or options. According to reactance theory, when parents forbid teenagers to attend the party, I mean, again, you already know where we're going with this, right? The teenagers will engage in behaviors that they think will increase their chances of regaining their options. For example, they may be arguing with their parents about the benefits, um, such as things like social acceptance, or the cost or the exclusion of being the only one in the class of not attending, uh, of attending the party. So, therefore, teenagers will try and regain the ability to attend the party. So, the more we tell them that you can't go to that party, the more psychological reactance they are going to feel and then basically act uh, act out against. And so, you know, often people, this, uh, this, um, this article goes on to talk about people engaging in exactly the same behaviors that was threatened or eliminated. So, therefore, if teenagers cannot convince their parents to let them go, they may go anyway, either by sneaking out of the house or pretending to do something else, such as going to a respected friend's house. If any of you has uh, kids, especially teenagers... Um, I'm sure that one sounds familiar. And finally, reactants may lead people to feel or act aggressively toward the person who is attempting to restrict their freedoms. For example, in times of war, citizens whose countries were being occupied may feel intense hatred towards the enemy, the occupiers, such that they have aggressive thoughts and even sometimes aggressive actions toward the enemy. And I think where things can get kind of interesting is we go back to that parenting example, that if we then become the punisher then there's going to over time be this uh, this kind of cause and effect or this um, this uh, you know trigger and attachment point where you know we might be saying and this is and it's funny this is the joke I'll often use is we might then say hey uh, hey bud here's you know here's fifty bucks and they're like I don't need your money old man you know and it's like oh geez that, that doesn't even make sense right but it's like it's this it's this psychological reactance it's it's just it becomes just a reactionary um, response which is part of why and I didn't even think about getting much into this one, but the nurtured heart approach of parenting, that style that I love, is it takes you out of the role of being the punisher. For example, you know, you're the one who is nurturing this inner wealth. You're the one that's saying, hey, I really appreciate the way you're getting your homework done because it shows me that you're going to be a responsible adult. Instead of saying, 
geez, you know, uh, can't you do a little bit more with that? I mean, you know, are you done already? Are you sure you didn't uh, double check your answer? You need to double check your answers or, you know, there's the same kind of a concept where a parent who means well of saying, Hey, I think it would help if you were a little more thorough. Think about this concept of reactance. Is the kid going to say, man, you know what, mom and dad, I think you're right. You know, no, they're going to say, I, I went over it as much as I can. There's nothing else I can do. You know, where if it's like, hey, I really appreciate you finishing up that project. You know, it looks like you really took your time on there. Um, then you can even say things like, hey, let, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. And, and if you've created that, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm the person you can come to and, and we'll kind of figure things out, then you're going to be a lot more open and in a position to help versus the person that's constantly saying, did you get your homework done? Right? Did you get it done? Are you sure you did it? Are you sure that you did you did everything you're supposed to? Because we're just continually feeding this reactance muscle in our teenagers, and uh, the more that we feed that reactance muscle, the more it becomes reflexive, and the more that you take on that role of the punisher. And uh, and again, I'm not saying that you just say tell kids, hey kids, you can get away with everything. Um, if you're not familiar with the nurtured heart approach or one of the one you know, love and logic or any of those parenting models. Uh, go to go to my website and and punch in those phrases, uh, nurtured heart, nurtured heart approach, and hear a couple of episodes that I've done on there because this is a, a big concept of being able to to drive change. Someone needs to feel like they are heard. They need to feel like they're they're going to be okay. They need to feel like you are a person that they can turn to, a safe person that they are able to then kind of you know bounce ideas off of, or that they can really open up and, and say. You know, I always feel like I'm getting my homework done, but then I show up and, and I've missed a lot of the answers, right? You know, and I don't really know what to do. You know, that's a lot more conducive to um, finding solutions than if they if they feel like, okay, well, if I go to my parents and they're just going to tell me, see, you know, I, I told you the whole time that you need to be doing things better. So um, influences on degree of reactance. So what I do find is interesting is the this article from the iResearch.net uh, talks about the magnitude of reactance is not exactly the same for each person, nor for each situation, which then I say goes back to their private experiences. But they say rather it depends on several key factors. First, the importance of the action or choice determines the degree of reactance to the loss. That is, when something that is very important to a person is in jeopardy, that person will probably experience stronger reactance, um, which means an increased attempt to regain control. For example, students wishing to enroll in a course would probably value enrolling in it more if it's required to graduate than if it is only an elective. Consequently, if it's required to graduate and they're unable to enroll in it because the course is full, they will react more strongly than if they had wanted to take it simply as an elective. Moreover, the students who value it more will probably try and reassert their ability to take the course by pleading their case to the professor or the department, whereas those students who wanted to take it as an elective might just attempt to enroll in the course next semester, though to be sure they'll probably want to take it, uh, take the course more than before because they, were, they weren't able to. So if an, if an option or behavior is, has not been taken away but has only been threatened to be taken away, the perceived magnitude of the threat, um, that is, if, the, if only a threat exists, will determine the strength of the reactance experienced by the person. If the threat is blatantly strong, then the person will experience stronger psychological reactance in response to the threat. So um, a couple more paragraphs and we're going to wrap this one up because I want this one to be, I want it to be short and I want it to be just a, hopefully it hits home and you can do a little more digging on reactants. But I really feel like having this new word, this shiny new word toy is going to help a lot because you're going to recognize the psychological reactants and those that you are around. Those of you are those you're trying to, to influence. So having control over their actions and behaviors, again, is one of human beings most important and valued needs. Uh, this article says, indeed, people become distressed and angry and even aggressive to actual loss of freedom, even perceived infringement on freedom. For example, 
After a couple breaks up, the person who initiated the end of the relationship is better able to cope and often feels a maintained sense of control, and the person who did not have control over the termination of the relationship, however, will typically want his or her ex-partner back even more. Holy cow, do I see that in therapy. And it almost becomes to the point where the person is saying, why am I, why am I fighting so hard for this person that is obviously not, not, not that into me? Um, that person also tends to feel a lack of control over the situation, which can be accompanied by wanting the ex-partner back more, being unable to think about anything else, and taking extreme steps to try and win that person back. So, I mean, that is psychological reactance in, in the couples therapy setting or in relationships or in breakups. Why it can be so hard to break up is because the person that did the breaking up had been processing this. You know, they've been going through this. The person who was broken up upon feels this deep psychological reactance or this lack of freedom or this lack of control. So this article kind of ends by, and I think this one's pretty, this is pretty deep. Uh, it talks about, um, you know, that, that reactance will produce behavior that is opposite of what was intended. So they just kind of hypothesize that this could be one reason why restrictions on violent video games and movies or pornographic material or other unhealthy behaviors such as smoking or drinking underage leads to the opposite of the intended effect. Humans will even use this basic knowledge to their advantage. For example, some parents may try to have their children cooperate by using reverse psychology on them. But there, that part at the end is pretty fascinating. And it actually kind of circles back around to the interview that I did with Nikki Eisenhower that I mentioned at the top of the hour, um, at the top of the hour, the top of the show, if uh, on her podcast, Emotional Badass. Um, that one, she talks about, she's coming from this angle of, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't a little bit of porn okay? Or um, just really talking about uh, how to embrace one's sexuality, which I appreciate the embracing one's sexuality part. And, and in essence, where I met her with was that, hey, my job is to meet a client where they're at. If somebody comes into me and says, I don't even think I need to get rid of, you know, porn or that sort of thing. It's like, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting right here beside you. Let's talk about it. Because I feel like, you know, we're typically met with so much psychological reactance. So if I'm, if I was saying, hey, you know why you really need to do it? Because it's going to ruin your marriage. Because it's going to warp your sense of sexuality. Because they're, you know, erectile dysfunction rates and, and ages, blah, blah, blah. Is this rate? I mean, I could say all of those things. But then again, psychological reactance. The person is going to immediately resist or react. It's almost as if they're saying, well, I'll show you. I can do it. I'm fine. So I, I hope that this was productive today. I hope that you got something out of this. Um, you know, go back and look at the links that I will share on this about the articles about psychological reactants and even just a quick uh, Google search of psychological reactants. You will find a tremendous amount of data here and it's very easy to understand, relate to. And, uh, and I think it's something that, you know, you can bring up, bring up with your spouse, bring up with your family because it, it would be nice to even kind of, I think, call it out, you know, in a very loving way of, of, you know, Hey champ, I notice you're, uh, I feel like you're uh, exhibiting some psychological reactants there. Want to talk about it? Um, you know, which I guess they may have have reactants to actually calling out their reactants. But again, I think that's very deep. So, hey, thanks for joining me today. Um, it's been a while since I've even said this, even though right now you're about to hear some amazing music, a song called It's Wonderful. That is by the wonderful, the talented, the virtual couch podcast guest of long ago, Aurora Florence. But uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for um, all of the support. Please feel free to share this episode if you think there was something here that could help somebody else. And I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most wonderful I have to wonder
Develop distance, don't explode. Allow